0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. During the last US presidential election cycle, Kansas pastor Adam Hamilton noticed something. People were becoming more fearful. It was due in part to political campaigning.
1: Fear was raised to a whole new level. And it was fear of other people. It was fear of what was gonna happen in our country. It was. Uh, you know, And it wasn't just soundbite commercials, it was campaign speeches, and it wasn't just at the national level, although it was perfected at the national level.
0: Hamilton, who leads a church of more than 20,000 near Kansas City, decided it was time to address this anxiety. He came up with tools to conquer fear, for anyone, whether you're religious or not. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Fear is a deeply ingrained part of every human being. In fact, it's essential for survival. But it's easy to get caught up in fear and think the worst. When Hamilton noticed the people in his congregation becoming more fearful, he took a survey. The results showed certain age groups were more anxious than others, and fears were different, depending on age. Hamilton leads the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection and has written more than two dozen books. One of his latest is Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. It addresses fears from politics, but also personal fears, such as failure or fear of death. He speaks with John Dickerson, co-host of CBS This Morning. Their conversation happened in June of 2018. Here's Dickerson.
2: Where did this
1: book come from? Yeah. So, a regular part of pastoral ministry is helping people deal with fear. Uh, And human beings, one of our most basic and primal instincts is fear. It was designed into us as a protective mechanism. It's the reason why, as a species, we survive. And yet, often fear takes over and we end up paralyzed by fear. We end up acting out in ways that are inappropriate or harmful because of our fears. And so, uh, As I was thinking about this, the the book really began to be written during the presidential election season. Uh, 2015, during the primary season, and 2016, the beginning of the primary season, and finally the the, uh, presidential election. And what I was seeing was always in politics, it's easy to go for fear. Uh, When you can make people afraid, it's a very quick way in a 30-second soundbite commercial to tell people, this is what's going to happen if the other guy gets elected, or the other gal gets elected. And, uh, and so we were watching that, but it seemed as though in 2015, 2016, fear was raised to a whole new level. And it was fear of other people, it was fear of what was going to happen in our country. It was, uh, you know, and it wasn't just soundbite commercials, it was campaign speeches. And it wasn't just at the national level, although it was perfected at the national level, it was happening at the local level as well. And so I was watching people's, in our community, people's fear rising, their anxiety rising. And, uh, and it felt like the right time to address the issue of fear and, and, of course, not just these kind of fears that come from the political situation, but also our deeply personal fears, fear of, about significance or fear about failure
2: or fear of death, those kind of fears as well. Anybody here who's received a solicitation asking for money in a political context knows that those, those letters don't start with, everything's going to be okay. It's usually a sign that the wolf is at the door and we need your money immediately. So you, you um, have this inclination, this instinct to, to take on this question. And then what do you do next? Yeah. So I decided, I began to
1: flesh this out. And I fleshed it out with my, the former editor of my uh, book, Making Sense of the Bible. He, he became my agent. And we were fleshing this out because he himself had struggled with anxiety. And so he was saying to me, you know, look, I wrestle with this at a, a more clinical level. I think this could be really helpful. And uh, not at a clinical level, but I mean, a, a much more severe anxiety that he'd been wrestling with recently. My wife, LaVonne, had, had uh, struggled with panic attacks and anxiety back 15 years ago. And so you know we began to flesh out, OK, what might that look like to actually, you know, not on the political side, but on this other side, on the more personal side, how do we help people? And began to lay that out. And then I began thinking, I want to test this out with my congregation. So we laid out a sermon series. First of all, we surveyed the congregation. We did a survey in the fall of 2015. And, uh, and out of that came a sermon series in 2016. Actually, I'm sorry, the fall of 2016, a sermon series in 2017, 15 and 16, 2016. And, uh, and the surveys, I wanted to find out how many of our people wrestle with fear. And what we found is a significant number of our people were wrestling with fear. And, uh, and actually I actually have the data. I thought, is it okay yeah, if I show this? Yes, yes. So I'm gonna try this here and see if this, so this is what we found. How fearful are we? We had 2,500 people take the survey. And, uh, and what was interesting is, if you look at the significant fear, how many people are de- wrestling with significant fear? Moderate fear, you add those two together, you have, uh, and, and you can see by age, 18 to 35 year olds, 88% of 18 to 35 year olds dealing with at least moderate, if not significant levels of fear. And you look down that list, and what was interesting, several things were interesting. First of all, uh, in almost every age category, more than half the people deal with at least moderate levels of fear in their life uh, at the time the survey was taken. Another factor that I thought was interesting was that our fear dissipates over time. And so I would have thought that the older folks were more fearful. Instead, we found that millennials were the most fearful group out there. And and as we try to think about this, the thing that struck me was the longer you live, the more you realize that the stuff you were afraid of didn't really happen. And so you have enough life experience by the time you're in your 70s to go, you know what, I don't have to be afraid of that because I survived a whole lot of stuff already that I was really worried about and stressed about. And to me, this was actually good news for young adults who wrestle with fear, that the older you get, the less fearful you become. And uh, so anyway, we looked at what are people afraid of, and we asked this question, and we gave them a list of about 30 things. and We found that what young adults were fearful of was different than what older adults were fearful of. Now again, this is in the fall of 2015, but for those under 50, personal failure was their number one fear. Disappointing others, future uncertainty, that is uncertainty about my personal future, uh, finances and the death of a loved one, a parent or uh, somebody who was close. For those who are 50 and older, the uh, answers were quite different, the direction of our country. And uh, Gallup has done work on this, the direction of the country and what we fear. When a Republican is in the president's uh, presidency, Democrats are most fearful about the direction of our country. Uh, at this time, uh, a Democratic president was in office and Republicans were most fearful about the direction of our country. Um, so this flips and, and we're equal opportunity Uh, fearers when it comes to this, depending on who's in the office. Finances for retirement, that makes sense, especially among baby boomers who uh, did not save enough for retirement. Growing older, uh, loss and growing older as in I think I'm gonna be less happy, my life will be less fulfilling when I get older. Um, Loss of mental capacity, I feel like maybe I'm already losing my memory Um, and then finally becoming dependent upon someone else. So very different fears between these two. But what it told me was that I had a lot of people who had fear, and this is what all the surveys say across the country, is that human beings wrestle with fear. We are living in times, anxious times, and so we thought, OK, we really have something here. We really should pursue this. And then I laid out five sermons. And I thought, we're gonna do, I'm going to do as much research as I can to prepare for those sermons and test these ideas out. Those five sermons became the five sections of the book. And then the book allowed me to expand upon that significantly from what I could do in the sermons. And what we found is that people felt like these were really helpful to them. They felt like they were less anxious. They felt like they had a handle on uh, a bit more of a handle on what was happening in the world around them and why they were feeling fearful and some tools to help them deal with their fear.
2: So I want to get—I um, want to talk to you, uh, go back before we get back to fear about the, about the joy of fear and the good part of fear. But one thing that struck me just there about the direction of the country, yes. um, people in politics talk about the honeymoon period that doesn't exist anymore. When Eisenhower and Kennedy were elected, vast numbers of people from the opposite party were excited. It gave them an approval rating. The, the partisanship we're in now, that is now gone. So the fear that you identify in your survey is a permanent fear, whereas 30 years ago, you might become disappointed over time with a president, but it was not a constant state. Um, so just back to your political point, that disappointment with the country feeling is now a constant. It is not something that you come to after you've been disappointed by a president. Right. You talk about um, the, go- the good gift of fear. Let's talk about that a little yes. bit. So, so fear is a gift. You,
1: you wouldn't survive without it, right? Fear is meant to. It's a biological, we're hardwired for it, to protect us from harm. So you are meant to, when there's a threat to your existence or something that's going to bring harm to you, both either physically or psychologically, your body reacts in a way that is designed to uh, either fight the fear or run from the fear, right, the fight-or-flight mechanism. And that mechanism is really twofold. One is your amygdala, which is two almond-shaped uh, pieces, portions of your brain, uh, clusters of uh, neurons that are, uh, your, in essence, your body's smoke detector. Uh, it, is, it is taking all of, the, all of the data from your eyes, your ears, your touch, your smell, your taste, and, uh, and instantly, before you can even logically process it, it is determining whether this is a potential threat, and then it's preparing your body for action. So when it perceives a potential threat, this is why somebody can, out of the corner of your eye, can, you can see someone throwing something at you, and you immediately duck before you've even processed it. I mean, how cool is that? That our bodies are able to do this and all animals have some form of this uh, mechanism. And then what it does is it triggers a response and that response is to, uh, it opens up your blood vessels, it, or constricts your blood vessels, excuse me, it makes your heart beat faster, uh, your palms might get sweaty, you are, you are tense up, it releases uh, uh, hormones in your body that are designed to help you either fight or flee or, uh, or to freeze, right? Fight, flight, or freeze. And so it gives you all of these tools. That's awesome and we couldn't live without it. Sometimes your smoke detectors in your house go off when there's no smoke, right? when there's no fire. Anybody ever have that happen where your smoke detector goes off in the middle of the night and there's nothing? right? Sometimes your amygdala does the same thing. And this is often where we have, when we talk about panic attacks or anxiety disorders, sometimes these are going off uh, at a time when they're not supposed to be going off. Now there's another process that's also designed to help us and, and is a huge gift to us. And that is you have the cognitive ability to imagine possible threats that you have not experienced yet. So you're taking information from the news, media, from other places, and uh, or your body is simply, your mind is simply imagining what bad things could happen to you. And you're constantly imagining what those things could be. So if you see clouds, you think, I better take an umbrella with me to work because it might rain today. If you see lightning, you think, I better stop playing golf because I could get killed out here. So you've got this constant imagination. Part of the challenge is uh, that we have, our imagination tends to run away with our fears. And so we're constantly able to imagine a thousand different threats that could kill us today or that could harm us today or make us feel bad. And so it's no, you know, it's a surprise that we're not just a quivering bundle of fear all the time with our capacity to be able to constantly imagine bad things that could happen to us. That ab- ability to imagine bad things could happen is also an ability to imagine that you could do something bad to me so that fear of the other comes into play here. And again, the inputs for that are often what we're listening to. So if I listen to a radio station or or I listen to news that's constantly telling me how I should be afraid of other people, pretty soon I'm going to be pretty darned afraid of other people. Um, so anyway, that, so it's, it's a good gift, but we tend to, and the word psychologists use is catastrophize. Yeah. Right. We tend to assume that everything, you know, that the worst thing is always going to happen, and, and it's, there's a lot of bad stuff, and we need to be afraid all the time.
2: Yes, sometimes you feel like it's the revenue model of cable news. Um,
1: yeah, the, exactly.
2: Um, now, it, let's get a little bit more specific, though, because you did some analysis on, particularly in the political context, um, the ways in which the messages we hear are at odds with the data that exists, right. um, and the way in which it's become, and you even talked to some political um, folks who inv- are involved in campaigns, the way it is a part of uh, what, what gets them a result but is actually contrary to what's actually happening. Right.
1: So, um, so I want to I address that, but I'd like to first just say there's – I put together an acronym for fear that's aimed at giving the solution to fear. Now, there's not a solution, but throughout history, human beings have wrestled with fear. I mean, this is, this is a common part of our human experience. And so I look to see what have human beings done to address their fears throughout time. And there were four broad categories. So uh, I'll I'll mention these briefly, and then that's going to get to the the question you just asked. So uh, this acronym for fear, which aims to try to help you remember some tools, uh, the first is facing your fears and facing them with a bias of hope, faith or a bias of hope. And this faith isn't religious faith. It's faith that, you know, somehow it's going to work out okay, or I think I'm going to survive this, or... Uh, so George Michael wrote a song called Faith years ago, and the faith wasn't about religious faith. It was about he'd gotten dumped and he had faith that somebody was going to want to love him again. It takes as much energy to imagine the worst as to imagine the best, and so we cultivate a bias of hope. Uh, the second is examining your assumptions in the light of the facts. And so we have assumptions that have been maybe given to us or we, you know, somehow have been built into us. So we examine those in the light of the facts. That's what you're asking about, and I want to get to that in a second. Attacking your anxieties with action, so fear is meant to move you to action. And the last one is releasing your cares to God, and this is where the religious component comes in. So I want to to mention uh, this. Uh, So this slide is the occurrence of violent crime in America since 1988. In 2015, 2016, uh, Gallup measured that, that Americans were more fearful than they'd been in 15 years. Uh, they were more fearful than they'd been at any time since just after 9-11 in 2016. They were fearful of violent crime. That was one of the n- number one things they were fearful. Like Something like 80% of Americans reported that they were uh, significantly or very fearful of violent crime. And yet, if you go to check out the facts, so if you're examining your assumptions in light of the facts, this is what you find has happened to violent crime since 1988. Since 1990, when it peaked, it's cut in less than half. So when you examine your assumptions in light of the facts, you go wait a minute, maybe I don't have to be as afraid, but nobody wants to tell you this when you're running for office, or if you're selling security systems for your house, or you know a whole host of other things. We, we need you in order to sell this. We need you to be in a heightened state of fear. And this says, maybe you don't have that much to be afraid of. I have a friend who lives in a gated community. He's in his uh, early 70s. He lives in a gated community, and he recently got gun training and, and got a gun. And, uh, and I'm not sure what all was behind that for him, but I know for many people who are purchasing weapons, it's because they're afraid. But in this suburban community, uh, gated suburban community, if you looked at the, at the violent crime rates in his community, they're virtually nil. Almost all violent crime, most violent crime is happening in the inner city, and it's happening among young African-American men who, who do have a reason to be afraid. But when you talk about suburban 70-year-old white men in a you know, in a gated community, probably not a lot for me to be afraid of. So it's, exa- you know, once you examine the facts, you find it sort of changes your fear factor. At least that's one factor. And, and therapists talk about this as cognitive therapy it's actually gaining information that will help you not be quite so afraid.
2: We've seen that more recently on the, uh, the claims that MS-13 is using families to come into the United States 0.02% over the last 15 years of the. Of the, uh, have been any in any way related to MS13 and the families uh, that were coming across the border. Um, That's exactly right. The um, let's talk about facing your fears. Um, now that we've taken care of number of, of uh, examining in light of the facts. Yep. So I want to I
1: want to mention as as we talk about facing our fears, one of the things that and I love Eleanor Roosevelt has this quote. She says, "You gain strength, courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face." You're able to say to yourself, I live through this horror, I can take the, take the next thing that comes along. Now, some things you're not meant to look in the fear in the face. Like, I don't think you're meant to pick up rattlesnakes just to see if you can quell your fear of rattlesnakes. You're meant to be afraid of them, right? Fear is supposed to cause you to be cautious about some things. But for many things, we allow fear to keep us from actually living. I mean, part of the best part of life is taking risks. I remember the night before I got married, I was terrified. Uh, my mother had been divorced, my father, uh, my mom had been divorced several times, my, you know, my parents had divorced. I was afraid, and, and I had good reason to be. It was the week after high school graduation, which is like a really stupid thing to do, but we got married the week after high school graduation. But Levon and I have been married 36 years now, and I think how much I would have missed out on if I had decided that I was going to give in to my fear and to not do that. Or you know, I started a church from scratch, a United Methodist church from scratch. And, uh, and everyone was telling me all the reasons, there's 20 reasons why it shouldn't have worked, and it, it had a good chance it wouldn't have, but it did, and I might have missed that, and it's true for you and the career you've taken, and everyone else, The most of the best things in life that you do required some measure of risk, and if you gave into the fear, you would have missed out. I think about skiing down the mountains here, and I love to ski, but you know, you get that thing that says if you break your neck or you're paralyzed, it's not on us, and you have to sign that, right, before you get on the ski slopes, like, but somehow we overcome that fear. So anyway, facing your fear becomes important. And you can unlearn fear. So you learn fear, you can unlearn fear. If you think about Pavlov's dogs and they learned a certain response, they, can, they were conditioned to a response, but they could unlearn that response over time. So I was thinking about my daughter, Danielle, and she you know, knowing that, that she came from a family was, where there was a history of uh, anxiety, uh, she did something while she was in college at K-State that uh, she didn't tell us about until afterwards. She took skydiving lessons. Now, when you're a parent and you work really hard to keep your kids safe, and then you find out they started jumping out airplanes, it doesn't make you happy. And so we're at lunch, and she said, I want to tell you guys something. I want to tell you I took skydiving. I've been jumping out of, jumping out of airplanes for the last semester. We're like, what? I mean, <laughs> tears are welling up in her mother's eyes. I'm like, what, what were you thinking? You know, why did you do this? And... Uh, and Anyway, I had her, her, for the book, I had her tell me the story. And this is what she wrote. She said, as a trainee, the jump began by instructing, uh, well, first of all, she said, I joined the skydiving team knowing that uh, in my family I was genetically predisposed to anxiety, so I wanted to take preventative measures to keep from being, from allowing fear to govern my life. So then she says this, uh, she described the experience. As a trainee, the jump began by the instructor throwing open the door of the plane next to which you were sitting. Being on the edge of the plane, looking out at the ground was terrifying and exhilarating. Once you worked up the courage, you would grab to a bar that connected the wing of the plane to the body and pull yourself out so that you were flying parallel to the plane for a few seconds. You got your body into a spread eagle position, then you let go. It's a totally unique vantage point from which to see the world calm and removed from all worry and chaos, a place where you can simply be an observer. Once your feet touch the ground, this is the important part, the ground, uh, once your feet touch the ground, the rush returns and you feel like you could do anything. After all, you have looked death in the face and said, not today. And there's something about that facing your fear and, and conquering it. And so, you know, you, you do that little by little. You, uh, an NPR uh, story several years ago had a journalist who, whose daughter was afraid of roller coasters. And so he takes his daughter out. She's, I don't know, nine years old or something. She takes her out on a, on a kiddie roller coaster and, and I think bribes her to ride the roller coaster. She's terrified. And she gets off and she's like, well, that wasn't so bad. So they go on the next one terrified. They go on the, finally, they end up on a double-looping, upside-down roller coaster at Six Flags with a 3D thing connected to your face while you're doing it. And she's, you know, I don't want to do it, Dad. I don't want to do it. And she gets off, and, and she's screaming. He records the whole thing on his, on his phone. She gets off, and she's uh, screaming, you know. She said, that was awesome. That was, she said, I'm a different person than I was five minutes ago. <laughs> but it's a picture of what, of what uh, therapists call extinction, you're extinguishing the fears by facing them little by little. And that's just one ther- you know, that's just one strategy. There's a whole bunch of them, but that's that facing your fear with faith.
2: And I wanna um, put a finer point on this idea of strategies because what's so helpful in the book is that this is not just an illumination of why we are afraid in an uncertain times because I think for some people that would be an intuitive uh, point they wouldn't need much explaining on. But what you're really outlining here is a practice, is a habit of behaviors, sometimes breaking the habit, breaking the fear habit. Um, and in inserting new habits that are a part of a, of a daily practice. Right. Um, so you, we've done, uh, we face the fears, examine them in light of the facts. What's the A? Yeah.
1: So the A is attacking your anxiety with action. Fear demands action. That's, that's why you have this response built into you, is it's meant to provoke you to do something in response to the fear. Uh, but before we do that, I, I do want to share one more of the, uh, of the... Places where you examine your assumptions lie of the facts. Actually, two places. Uh, so when you get facts, it really helps a lot, this cognitive side. So one of those was a chart that I had here. And, and uh, it's interesting. Most adults believe that the older you get, the less happy you'll be. Uh, so there is a sense in which the happiest you're going to be is in your 20s. And then you're a little less happy in your 30s. And you're a little less happy in your 40s, which actually is true. Um, and in your 50s, uh, early 50s, you, uh, nationally, there is a, a trough at your low 50s. Uh, in marriage, it usually happens after you have children, and then uh, when they're teenagers, you hit the trough, and then you start coming out. But, but overall, uh, when you're in your 50s. But an interesting thing happens, uh, and so I want to show you this. This chart is self-reported well-being on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, and it was taken by Nielsen. And you'll notice that the high point uh, to begin with is 18 to 21. So we start, and we're pretty, pretty happy then. We hit a trough, we hit the low point between 50 and 53. I'm pretty excited about this because I'm 53. So my life is about to take off, and I feel pretty <laughs> good about that. But, uh, but I want you to notice the happiest people in the survey. Somewhere around age 69, you surpass how happy you were when you were 18 to 21. Your sense of well-being. This isn't true for everybody, but it's true for more people than it's not true. And the people who reported the highest level of well-being were in their 80s. And so once more, when you know that information, you go, well, maybe I don't have to be so afraid of growing old. I mean, that's one of the big fears we have is growing old. The Buddha had this great fear of growing old. And yet somehow when we understand this data, we maybe can find that there's more joy there than what we realized. So uh, another example of this is Alzheimer's. Uh, How many of you in this room have wondered at some point whether you had early onset Alzheimer's? (laughs) be honest. (laughs) All right, so when I ask, that it shows that there's quite a few younger people here, but for most people over 50, we have, we have thought that, and we've maybe said it to some, I'm afraid I have early onset. So when you do the data, uh, you do the study, you find that of people under 65, only 0.24% have early onset Alzheimer's. So yes, you're forgetting things, but it's not early onset Alzheimer's. You have a 99.76% chance that you do not have early onset Alzheimer's. So when we talk about exa- uh, attacking your anxieties with action, uh, I was here last year at the uh, Aspen Ideas Festival, and I went to the tent where they'll check your body mass, your weight. How many of you have done that so far? All right. If you haven't yet, you should do it. So uh, you know, they do your blood test. Uh, all of my measures were bad. I was overweight by 20 pounds. My cholesterol was horrible. My triglycerides were bad. I, my body mass stunk. Um, it was all bad. My skin test was fine. I didn't have any bad skin stuff, but all the rest of it was bad. I did another test when I got back to Kansas City, and they, did a, they do this thing where they scan your arteries. It was not good. And I felt anxiety about, I want to be here for my granddaughter. She's four now, and I'm afraid I won't be. And so for a while, I didn't do anything about it. I just lamented in the fact that I was afraid I was going to die early. And then I thought, I have to do something about it. Downloaded the 7-Minute Workout app on my phone. I began working out. I began eating better. You know, and I lost 25 pounds in the last year. And I went in there t- uh, yesterday and got my blood work done. And my cholesterol was great. My triglycerides were great. You know, my, all that. But see, I was paralyzed and stuck for a while. And then I finally had to, my fear was meant to move me to do something about the fear. So I think about, uh, I think about the kind of fears. So a whole section of this book is about fear of the other. And how easy it is for us to become afraid of the other. And this isn't just something that conservatives deal with. It's something that progressives deal with, too. So uh, it's something that every race deals with, every culture, every religion. There is is an inherent fear of those who are different from ourselves. Uh, Today, progressives are really afraid of Trump supporters and Trump. Uh, Conservatives, at one point, were really afraid of Obama. And so those fears. and, and, And so what we find is to attack your anxiety with action when it comes to fear of the other is to get to know the other. So I was thinking about this and that's the picture you saw a moment ago but you know 1950s you've seen this picture before what was this about if it wasn't about fear and fear leads us to put somebody else in their place and to make sure that we have the power right so fear leads us to do horrible horrific things how do you how do you address the fear of the other and, and what we found, so in Kansas City, we've been working on uh, trying to bring racial justice in Kansas City. We're the 13th most segregated major American city. And so we've been working with the largest predominantly African-American church in Kansas City. And we've begun developing a team of allies for racial justice. We get together for fellowship. We go to baseball games together. We get together for seminars. We get together for you know to eat together, to have ice cream. We get together to share each other's stories. We have hundreds and hundreds of people getting together. And what happens is when I get to know you and you get to know me, I'm no longer afraid of you, and I'm no longer afraid of people who look like you. We had an Iftar dinner during Ramadan, and at the Iftar dinner, we invited uh, members of the Muslim community to sit at table with members of our congregation and members of the community at large, and we sat and we ate dinner together at 9 o'clock at night after the fasting was done for the day, and there was something that happened to people when they sat down and they broke bread together that changed them. Often our assumptions that we have about the other people are changed when we begin to address our anxieties with action, and so the, yeah, I give lots of examples of this in the, bo- in the book. But uh, but this action step becomes a really important piece of how we deal with our fears. Should
2: we go to R while we're on
1: them? Sure. Let's let's talk about R. So, oh, by the way, before we go to R, I do want to do. You want to give you one more uh, picture, and uh, that is this woman right here. So her name is Barbara Gatlin. And Barbara has given me permission to share her story. She's a member of our congregation. And she has really struggled with depression and anxiety in her life. And uh, she's been on medication. She's done a whole host of things to address this. Um, she began volunteering in our, we take service trips around the world. And those service trips are not so much about, well, where are the people who are going to come and help you? we're the people are going to come and we want to learn from you and we just want to hang out with you. And yes, we're going to drill boreholes, wells, and we're going to build houses and we're going to build schools. You tell us how we can help. We want to help. But mostly we want to just come to know you and get out of our bubble and actually spend time with people in a different part of the world. So Barbara began doing that about 10 years ago. And this is a picture from her last uh, trip to Africa where we were, I think this is where we were built, drilling uh, boreholes. And uh, I asked, I, she allowed me to share this in a sermon sometime back. And about fear, and as I was sharing this picture, what was interesting, she says, you know, the only time I don't feel afraid is when I'm helping other people. And this is what positive psychology teaches, right? Positive psychology says, that if you actually stop to help people and you take your eyes off yourself and you focus on other people, it helps you. And when you do it not just to help you, but to help them first, you find that you're not just doing it from a narcissistic, I want to get better by by serving you, so let me use you to make myself feel better. But instead, I actually care about you and want to get to know you, and when I do, somehow my fear levels begin to dissipate. So, again, that's another action step. But I, I asked the congregation, does she look fearful here in this picture? And instead, what she looks like is somebody who's filled with joy, which happens when we take action. So that next step is uh, releasing your cares to God. And, you know, I recognize it, Aspen, there's some who are here who are like, man, I'm not into the religion thing at all. And, and yet, Aspen invited me here because I'm a pastor, so I'm like the token Christian pastor religious figure here. So... Uh, I think the thing I'd remind you of is, you know, throughout history, in every culture, and every civilization, people have wrestled with fear. There are hundreds of mentions of fear and anxiety in the Bible. 140 times, 140 verses in the Bible say something to the effect of, don't be afraid. This is God speaking. Don't be afraid, for I'm with you. Long before we had Xanax and Zoloft... We had prayer and meditation and scripture and worship and singing to God and walking outside and just saying thank you. And, and what we find is if we eliminate that part and, and we just have the rest of it, uh, those are all really, really helpful. But my experience has been that when, when I can help people be able to say, okay, maybe there is a God. And I can imagine that there is no God and I'm all by myself and the world's going to hell in a handbasket and it's never getting any better. Or I can imagine that maybe, just maybe, you know, when I look up at the stars, there's somebody who imagined all of those and called them into existence. That that someone is with me all the time. Not making everything all better all the time. This is one of the misunderstandings that many religious people cultivate and have. And that is that God's job is to be the genie who makes everything okay all the time. But you can't really believe that if you take the Bible seriously. If you're a Christian, the central figure of our faith was tortured to death at the age of 33. Hardly a picture of a religion that promises that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. And all of the apostles, save one, were put to death for their faith. So Christianity is not a religion that says, gosh, if you just believe hard enough, no bad things are going to happen. It says no matter how bad things are, the worst thing is not the last thing. And there's always hope. And there's someone who's going to walk with you. And you turn to that someone. And it's not that, uh, that it inst- you know, God instantly solves all your problems. It's just that God says, look, I'm not going to leave you, and I won't forsake you. And no matter what happens, I'm going to be with you. And there's something to, and so, you know, I, we talk about in the book, I give like little things you can try, like breath prayers. Breath prayers are a spiritual discipline taught by the desert fathers, I think, and uh, back in the fourth and fifth century. And these were like a simple one-sentence prayer, like, I know you're with me, or the Lord is my shepherd, or help me to trust you, or I won't be afraid. But it's something you could say in one breath, and you repeat it over and over again. It's like a mantra. And somewhere along the way, that begins to sink into your heart. Or sometimes it's reading scripture before you go to bed. I, I, as a pastor, I deal with people. And by the way, the book I wrote is like 20 pastoral conversations. Like if you came to my office and we were going to talk about fear, I tried to write it like, grab a glass of iced tea and let's just sit and have a conversation about this. But, uh, but this fear factor when it comes to faith, that something happens for people when they are meditating upon scripture or they're thinking about these you know, these positive ideas or they're imagining that God is actually with them and by their side. And that the worst thing isn't the last thing, as Frederick Buechner has said, and that there's always hope. And so, uh, so this idea of releasing our fears to God. And, and you've, a, c- a couple of scriptures you may have heard. Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Not that nothing bad is going to happen, but he's going to be with you no matter what. Or I love this one, Psalm 23. You probably know this one. Even though I walk through the darkest valley or through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You are with me, your rod and your staff comforts me. So I have this picture I want to show you of what this uh, an illustration of this. We have a little dog. Uh, Her name is Maybell, and she is a uh, combination pug and chihuahua. So she's a chug. uh, She was a rescue dog, and uh, she's little. She's just like about this big, and she uh, is terrified when it's lightning and thundering out. When there's thunder or when there's fireworks. Now we have a house at the Lake of the Ozarks, and. People shoot off fireworks all summer long there. So here she is at the house, and the fireworks are going off. And one time last year, the fireworks were going off, and the lightning and thunder were going off at the same time. And she is just a quivering bundle of fear, because she doesn't know what to even do with these things. So my wife bought her something called a thunder jacket. Anybody ever heard of these? Yeah, yeah so so I, I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. There is no way that the thunder jacket is going to work. What it is, is you wrap your dog in this really tight, it's like swaddling them, and it's wrapped in Velcro. And, uh, and she said, well, let's just try it. And we tried it. And what it does is it, it, the dog imagines that they're being held. At least that's as I understand it. And when they imagine that they're being held, because they are being held by this thing, they're not as afraid. Now, this is a picture of Maybelle, uh with her <laughs> thunder jacket on. And, uh, and I, I love this uh, because it's a picture for me of what happens when I imagine there is a God who's holding me and that I'm not alone, and uh, I have a you know, granddaughter, Stella, she's four, she'll spend the night, and sometimes in the middle of the night, she wakes up crying, she has a bad dream, you know, and I tend to be the one who sleeps a little lighter, and so I go pick her up, the other day, I picked her up, and I held her tight, and she wouldn't stop crying, she's just, and so I'm kind of rocking and walking with her, And I'm holding her tight, and I just whisper to her, Papa's here, you're safe in my arms, I've got you, Stella, it's okay, pretty soon, she goes back to sleep, and somehow the knowledge that her papa was there, even at the subconscious level, helped her to be go, back, go back to sleep and not be afraid. So we should be afraid of some things. It's important, that's a, that's a good gift we have. But we are often way more fearful than we need to be or should be. Most of the things we're fearful, will never ha- fearful of never happen or will never happen that way. And there are steps we can cultivate to help us not be afraid. And that's really what the aim was in writing the book.
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Rose Marcario is mixing business with activism. She's the CEO of the outdoor apparel company Patagonia, which has sued the Trump administration and donated millions to environmental causes. In a recent episode of Aspen Ideas To Go, she talks about why Patagonia is stepping up its activism efforts. The reality is, you know, government is failing. You know, it's failing us. And when that happens, you have to step up. She explains how Patagonia's employees and customers are responding to the company's activism in the episode, Is Activism Good for Business? Find it in our archive at AspenIdeas.org or in your favorite podcast player. Let's jump back to today's featured talk. Here's John Dickerson.
2: I always like Matthew 6, which ends by saying... um, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Yeah. Um, but what you're talking about is not just, I, think, I can imagine, and tell me if this has been your experience, people, um, when it comes to faith, whether it's Christianity or any other, they think, well, you're just quoting little phrases to me. That's not very helpful. Yep. But what you're suggesting is, again, like all of the elements of FEA are, is you're, you're suggesting a practice. a a habit that you make a part of your life so that in times when you're not fearful, you're working on that, so that in times where you are, it has more sustaining power. Do I have that right? That's exactly right. It's like exercising. You know,
1: if you're going to need strength and you haven't exercised at all, to to do some push-ups right before you need your strength is not going to help you very much. (laughs) But if you're cultivating certain practices in your life, certain ways of, and that's why we talk about cultivating a bias of hope, when you work on that, you intentionally work on that, it helps you at the times when you most need it. It's harder to grab that in the moment when you need it if you've not been cultivating it otherwise. And, and all of these are, so most of the things I've shared in the book are not things that are coming directly from the Bible, although you can find examples of all of them in the Bible. They are things that therapists are teaching, but long before the therapists were teaching them and gave names to them like cognitive therapy or extinction therapy or any of these other things, human beings were already practicing them. People knew a long time ago to run towards your fears instead of away from them and you'll eventually conquer them. It didn't take a therapist to say that. The therapists have captured the combined wisdom of the ages. And that's what I tried to do in the book is to try to capture some of these age old things. Now, it's not that medication also isn't important sometimes. So when it comes to anxiety and you have clinical anxiety, you're probably gonna need you know, Zoloft or something to help you for a time and then gradually maybe less and less of that. But there's other things in addition to that that are really important. It's not enough, usually, just to give somebody a pill and that's going to solve their anxiety problems. And for most of us, there's some level of fear constantly. So, you know, some of the fears in here are about, uh, you know, fed by social media. There's FOMO, the fear of missing out. Fear of missing out leads people to do stupid things when they get to be my age, like thinking that maybe if I had a different somebody that I could sleep with, I'd finally be happy. And what if I'm missing out on what real great sex should look like? So maybe Maybe it's okay to have something else going on the side. Or there's a thousand examples of ways that we, you know, we feel anxiety and that leads us to action that's not always helpful. Um, and so cultivating those practices is important. And these four are some are the four most important common practices people have used throughout the ages to live with courage and hope in uncertain times. And and the the subtitle of the book is. Is because we are living in uncertain times. Every day, there's another news story that's out there that can leave us being fearful. There's another shooting that happened somewhere yesterday, you know, in, the, you know, in, a, in a newspaper. You, there's no shortage of these kind of things, and we get our news more frequently, right? I have a, I didn't wear it here, because I didn't want to go off while I'm sitting here, but my iWatch, I have, and I try to listen to both sides of the media, so I've got Fox News, and MSNBC, and CNN, and NPR, you know, all of these stations, and every time there's breaking news, my watch vibrates four times. And so throughout the day, I'm gonna find four horrible things that happened on four different stations. I get 16 notices throughout the day that something really bad happened. Well, how can you not be afraid? if you don't have some way to put that in perspective and some habits that you've cultivated to help you with that.
2: Let's have some questions. One of those habits could be going to snopes.com when you get... Uh, exactly, that's you know, the examining when, your assumptions. You're right, That's uh, assumptions in the light of the facts.
3: Yes, go ahead. This is a question for both of you. The the genetic predisposition to fear seems to be fueling the media, as it always has, um, overwhelming us with bad news. And, and I'm curious maybe why you don't program your watch for good news, for example. And so do you think that that genetic predisposition is so strong and there's nothing counterbalancing that that allows us to seek good news? And is there any evidence, John, in your experience where the media or a source of content is trying to counterbalance this?
1: Well, so on the I wish the apps would allow you to just say just send me good happy news stories. Maybe they do, and I haven't found that setting yet. <laughs> a so it's a quiet day. But I have added some apps to my uh, to my uh, watch that are and my phone that are gratitude apps that just trigger me. What are you thankful for at this time in your day? And they go off every so often, just to sort of counterbalance that that other fear factor. But I'm anxious to hear your response because I've asked some media folks about this. Uh, why do we have so much of the news seeming to focus on
2: the scary things? Well, I think it's a couple of things. Um, One is that it's a revenue model. I wasn't kidding before. I mean, um, some people need to keep eyes glued on the TV all the time. And so the news is always breaking. Or if it isn't breaking, you better watch because it's about to. Um, And so they keep you constantly hopped up. And this is a a cycle in which the press colludes with the political figures. Because as I mentioned, if you look at any fundraising uh, appeal you get, it's to keep you terrified that things are going to get worse if, if you don't donate. Politicians do the same thing. It's much easier to motivate people to, get to, the, to go out and vote if you feel like a right is about to be taken away or um, something is bad if the other person gets elected. So the system and the structure of it, absent facts, is, has a bias towards freaking everyone out. Then you have the actual facts, which are frightening. Um, and uh, just in the, in the reality of the moment. So um, there is actual news that's, um, th- that is um, concerning. And so that combination uh, creates a... Uh, and then if you have the fact that it is, as you mentioned, with your watch. You can't go through an airport or a deli without seeing a screen that is sending you those messages. Um, and so it's ever more with us and constantly with us. And we all know what it's like to get into that cycle of going down a rabbit hole, following something or watching something longer than you meant to and the residue you have through the rest of your day of having kind of binged on something that's just unpleasant. And we all have friends that we know um, who worry events like a a missing tooth um, and and it becomes their day. Um, I think in terms of what we can do, A, we can stop trying to freak people out. B, one of the things that we try every morning on CBS This Morning is to shine a light and not curse the darkness um, and to um, talk about our common humanity. Um, And um, I think our bias, when we look at a story, is a bias towards context. Um, And so um, to take any news event Usually, one of the important functions of the news is to give people some sense of control over their lives, exactly what Adam is talking about. So facts in in the light of your fears. And so if we know that politicians are trying to freak people out, or if events are scary, the antidote, as far as our job is concerned, uh, is to give people control. And that usually means context. So is what's happening now worse than before? Or has the country been through these kinds of things and there are pathways out of it? Um, if this is a bad situation, who's in charge? Are they going about remedying the situation in the right way? And if not, what are the remedies that aren't being tried and what are the action steps necessary to create those and implement those? All of which gives citizens control over the moment. Um, But the key there is context. The key there is explaining why something's happening, not just that something has happened. Um, And so that's the way I try to do my job and I think the way we try to do it at, at CBS.
3: Is, is there any genetic predisposition to positive news? I mean, the amygdala, does that overpower? Did God program us with, with something that seeks the best in us? And, like, I look at Bhutan, or you look at another culture where it's the opposite of us in so many ways. And I just, I'm curious, from a, a faith standpoint, why we don't have more of a predisposition to consume and desire positive news.
2: Right. Well, I would just, on the... On the specific wiring of our bodies, I've done some work on um, the way in which our attention is shredded by these devices, our news, our cares, our worries. Um, and so I've talked to some doctors who, uh, and they've done this in Tokyo, in Japan, um, it's now prescribed to people, something called forest bathing. And the idea is essentially, get, get thee to nature. Uh, and what happens is literally all the wiring that um, iPhones have used and Facebook and cable news have used to hijack your brain and keep you worried, nature has, uh, works it the opposite way. It hijacks your, hijacks your brain, gives you that sense of wonder, gives you that sense of openness, possibility. A lot of time, people talk about feeling a sense of God there and they want to correspond with that. So to the extent that there's hard wiring... Um, it's not necessarily to help you pick like crab meat out of a crab. The good news from the um, from the news cycle, but it is get yourself out into nature, and that hardwiring will work uh, for you.
1: Yeah, and I would agree with this that the uh, the things that are meant to counterbalance our fear and to you know balance that out. We're not doing enough of and so and those are also spiritual habits so it's it, you know and some find their spirituality in walking through the mountains or the forest but it's being outside it's being with other people today we have more people more young people who are struggling because they're interacting with their phones more than they are human beings and so that's creating an increased level of anxiety but the things that help us not do that that are designed in and includes prayer and a whole host of other things but are designed community eating meals together to counterbalance our fears we're not doing very much of, and instead we're doing a lot more than we ever used to. Like, Which of us grew up watching 24-hour news? It didn't exist when I was growing up. You didn't have an internet where the moment you turn on your browser, it instantly goes to a news page. You didn't have all of these things. Or uh, another example of this is uh, advertisements for drugs, which is a recent innovation. And there's something like 100 advertisements for drugs every day telling you both about something you didn't even know you had, that now you're supposed to ask your doctor if you have, and then the side effects make you scared by the time you think of that. So we are constantly feeding ourselves. It's like we're giving adrenaline to our amygdala, and the things that are meant to calm us, we are no longer doing enough of.
2: Yes.
0: I'm curious to hear your perspective. I think we're living in this time of fear and uncertainty, but a lot of those fears and uncertainties are really amplified for communities of color, LGBT communities, et cetera. How can we support those communities without, you know, diminishing or invalidating the fears um, and treating them the way, you know, handling them the way we might handle them or I might handle them as a white woman living in Manhattan? Yeah,
1: I think that's good. You may have an answer. Mine would be that we come alongside people. So that's what we've tried to do in Kansas City is breaking down the racial barriers, breaking down the religious barriers, coming along and saying, and you know, I I was at a mosque in Kansas City uh, a couple of months ago. And I actually went to their Friday prayer service, and I said, you know, and they introduced me as the pastor. They all knew our church. We're at this huge congregation. And I said, I just want you to know that that our congregation is standing with you. So to the degree that you can know that we have a group of people who say we're praying for you and we're standing with you. And if somebody harasses you, we are hoping that you will call us because we want to be there with you. And so I think there's something to coming alongside people who are... Uh, and standing up, you know the scriptures talk about speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. And so there's something about being able to do that. but uh, but I find so often we in our attempts to do justice or our attempts to rectify a wrong, sometimes we can actually increase the level of polarization and fear because we give we give only one side of the facts too, and we make the other side sound worse or more scary than they really are. And so even even those of us who are trying to do that, if we're not careful, we actually increase the anxiety. Now, there's a time that you need to increase anxiety. Like, if there's something that's really, you know, fear is supposed to move us to action and there's times, times to do that. Unfortunately, I think part of what you're supposed to do as a leader, if you're in a leader in industry or business or religion or politics, is your task is to try to figure out what are the things we really do need to get people hopped up about to, you know, to use your language and help them to act. And when are we supposed to tamp down the fears like you talked about with giving people, putting it in some kind of perspective? I mean, an example of that is you're 5,100 times more likely to die in a car accident than you are at the hands of a Muslim extremist in America. But we all get in our cars and we don't think anything about it. And yet, you know, the fear of Islam is something that permeates so much of our society.
2: Yes, question here.
0: Following up on that, um, what you said about fear being good and motivating you to action, some of us of my age group, a thing I worry about is things like global warming, extinction of species, what we're doing to the planet. And it's so far in the future, it's not on anybody, it's not on the common radar. Yeah. And how do we, that's the problem we have.
1: That is exa- that's exactly right. How do you motivate people to act if they're not afraid of something they should be afraid of? And, and then on the flip side, um, sometimes we've motivated people to be afraid of things that later on we found out, oh, we didn't really need to be afraid of that. And so it's a really kind of, and I'm not saying that of global warming, but, um, and researchers do the same thing. If you're in the cancer research field, you need to convince people that almost everybody's going to die of cancer so we can get – and you're not going to say that. But, but if you look at the, the fundraising techniques even there for a good cause, sometimes we end up creating more fear than is reasonable. I mentioned this in the book. But I do talk about global warming, and this is a wonderful way where you can attack your anxiety with action. If you feel anxious about global warming, then get out and do something. And when you do something, you feel like you're doing your part. The question is how do you help other how do you win friends and influence people when it comes to folks who don't necessarily see things the way you see it and often again, that has to do with compassionate understanding where they are and making a persuasive case
2: without just trying to scare the hell out of people This is the last one very briefly right here I'm from Kansas City I'm not a member of Adams congregation, uh, but your congregation was touched by a tragedy in 2014 and the response was, you know, there was no fear involved in the response. It was incredible. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how your congregant responded to that horrible situation? Absolutely.
1: So, uh, Mindy Corcoran's father and son were both shot to death outside the Jewish Community Center on Palm Sunday afternoon in 2014. And another person was killed um, just down the street, as she was leaving, visiting her mother at a Jewish community uh, retirement center, and she was the aunt of one of our staff members. So we, all three of the people who were killed, were somehow connected with our congregation. And Mindy's response has been most remarkable. She was on on your program at that time, and and several others. But um, Mindy said, and, "And you know, as we were working through this together, I am not going to." Two things. I'm not going to overcome evil with evil. But instead, I'm going to find a way to overcome evil with good. And the man who, who shot and killed her father and her son, uh, as, she was, as grandfather was taking his grandson to uh, rehearsals for a musical at the Jewish Community Center, um, was a neo-Nazi uh, from central Missouri. And she said, I am, we are not going to overcome this evil by participating in evil. But she also was determined to not let fear be the driving force in her life. And so she started what were called Seven Days of Kindness. And every year for seven days, there are seven acts of trying to help people understand each other better, bringing in people of different faiths and having conversations across faith groups, marches that were going on, a whole host of others. And your, your community was a part of that as well. It was a, it was a, Or your family. It was a really important... You're part of the Hellsberg family. Thank you for what you all have done in supporting that as well. But this was a really key... Uh, way of modeling for the community that we are not going to be driven by fear or hate or revenge. We're going to be driven by love and by a confidence that good can come out of tragedy.
2: All right, thank you That all story's
1: for- in the book as well. Thank you for raising that.
2: Thank you, Adam, and thank you all.
0: Adam Hamilton is the author of more than 20 books. He's founding pastor of the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Leawood, Kansas. John Dickerson is co-host of CBS This Morning. Previously, he anchored Face the Nation on CBS. Their discussion was held in June 2018 at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our new website, aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Brettman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.